All right, we're going to have one more session. It could be a short one. It could be a long one. I don't know. Uh, I got a laundry list of stuff to talk about, so I'm probably going to be referring to my notes. You'll excuse me. Just bear with me. But stuff that I uh, usually kind of try to get to before a talk ends. Um, I want to thank you so much for uh, hanging out with me today and, and having a discussion on the 12 steps, having a discussion on uh, this thing we have, this, this, uh, this uh, I don't think anyone ever said when Mr. Bill Wilson gets bad news, he likes to get it right away. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming and hanging out. And um, I want to talk a little bit more about step 11. And uh, we'll talk about the gifts of step 12, my, my life in step 12, some of the things that have happened to me in step 12. And if some of that can be helpful to you, that would be, uh, that would be just great. Um, I've heard many times that faith without works is dead. I think that's true. And I also think it's true that, that uh, works without faith are dead. That I've gotten to a point in Alcoholics Anonymous where I've done a lot of activity. And it hasn't been tethered or moored or anchored in a spiritual pursuit. And sometimes, you know what? It becomes a hollow endeavor. And it makes me pissed off. It makes me feel like I've just got a mouthful of ashes. So what has happened for me is I've had to be mindful of that. I believe that faith without works is dead, and I believe that works without faith are dead. And, if that, and that's one of the things that I've been so grateful to get involved in meditation and to quiet my mind a lot and learn about some of this stuff, because some of my works were being not backed up by faith. Um, I've heard many times in many different places and in our literature that <clears throat> pain is the touchstone of spiritual growth. I don't subscribe to that anymore. For me at this point, pain is a touchstone of spiritual growth. It's one of the touchstones. I, I change because I enjoy a lot. I really do. I, I change, I've gone through a lot of changes in A because I'm filled with joy and I want more of this thing. You know, and I'm willing to do more. And it's changed me. So I'm not negating the fact that uh, pain is a touchstone of spiritual growth. A friend of mine used to say that he surrenders like Custer. Um, all his men are dead. Um, his horse is dead. He's out of ammo. Seven arrows are headed for his ass, and he goes, "I give up." And uh, <laughs> another another friend of mine said he gave, he surrendered like uh, uh, when his back was against the wall and the wall was on fire. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, and I understand that. I really understand it. But I, I also understand that I uh, I've got a, I got more colors on my palette. I used to have coma and terror. That was pretty much it. That was it. Zero or Mach 10. And now I have a lot of other colors on my palette. I am able to get angry today without it going instantly to resentment. And early on, I wasn't. Because I'd re-experienced it all. Now, there are times when I get angry and I hear the page, I just hear the pencil on the paper. I know that they got me. You know? It, it says, I believe, on page 66, uh, <clears throat> that... Uh, that uh, that fear can no longer be the centerpiece, you know. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll actually break down and look in the book and get the exact verbiage on that. But it says we had to be free of fear, not that I would never experience fear. I, uh, I, I didn't come here to be a brain-dead Mooney. I, uh, uh, 
if we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. This is uh, third paragraph, page 66. Brainstorm in 1937 meant cloud over your head, meant storm, depression. It wasn't what it means today, which is active, creative thought. It's very important, for, and if you read uh, a dictionary from 37, that's the definition of it. And that was very important. That was very confusing for me when I first read it, because I like, I want to write, I want to do, be creative at work. I want brainstorms. Well, that's not what it meant in 1937. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. <clears throat> they may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. We had to be free of anger. Not that I'd never be angry. Not that I'd never be angry, but I'd be free of it. It had to, I had to stop being driven by it. It had to stop being the centerpiece. And I've, I, uh, early on, I found it very difficult to not get annoyed and angry and for it to not to go pretty quickly to resentment. And now I've got all sorts of colors on my palette. But that's been true of my whole life. I have a lot more colors on my palette because I'm not caught in this death grip of knee-jerk reaction to perceived wrongs. And I come from a culture, when, I'm, when I describe my mother, I, I always say, when, when my mother says, we'll worry about that later, that's not a figure of speech. She means get your book out. We can put this in the book. Tuesday, 9 o'clock. We'll worry about it then. It's not a figure of speech, you know. Um, uh, <laughs> um, I come from a culture of re-experiencing these perceived wrongdoings. Am I throwing my family under a truck? No, no it's just it's the way I was brought up. Uh, the, the thing is, for family members of mine who are not alcoholics, they seem to have a little more room for movement than I do. And I painted myself into a corner as a result of my alcoholism. You know what? My beliefs have always made me feel good. Uh, they always have, even when I rearranged my life to accommodate alcoholism. I thought when I was drinking, my job was to sneak to wander out to the icy edge, stare over, look at what was real, and then come back and report to you. I, I thought this was my job. Now, usually I was too uh, uh, loaded to get over to the icy edge and too devastated to remember what I had saw, but that, that's what I thought my job was. Um, um, I've heard faith described as a willingness to expose myself to the truth despite the consequences. And I want to tell you, that is one of the most beautiful expressions to me of what I've done in Alcoholics Anonymous. That faith is the willingness to expose myself to the truth despite the consequences. And I had to do that in a hothouse of trust and love. I couldn't have done that in a vicious situation. It just couldn't have happened for me. And the treatment that I uh, experienced, some people might experience it as too rough. And I might experience your experience as too rough. This is why God made more than one of us, I'm convinced, so that we would experience these things in different ways. I've built a prayer life. I took the first two steps with my sponsor that morning. I took the third step. I did six and seven. I added that to the mix. And then when it came time to... Uh, and these, all of these things, I, I end my prayer every day with saying, Pop, just keep me sober just till 12 o'clock tonight so that I might better do thy will. And that's my value judgment that I'm saying that I can better do his will by being sober. That's just, that's, that's the self that gets in there, but that's okay. I'm willing to live with that. That's fine. Uh, in Resist Not Evil, in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, Emmett Fox writes, Swear not at all. It means briefly that you are not to take vows, to resist not evil. Stop resisting evil. We can't swear off alcohol. We can't, we can't will it away. Sometimes I try to pray it away. Pop, you know, I, 
we pray differently. You know, sometimes people pray for other people when they're resentful at them. I don't do that. I, I don't do it. When I do that, I go, Pop, help this guy. Uh, kill him. Uh, kill him. He needs killing. He needs killing. It'll be good for everyone. I'm telling you. Uh, uh, and yeah, and 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 I know people who pray for people who are resentful, and they find it tremendously helpful. It doesn't help me at all. I can't be doing it righter than them. It's not possible. We just have different approaches to get a demonstration going in our life. And what Fox says is this is correct. Stop saying I'm going to be sober for the rest of my life. Stay sober till 12 o'clock tonight. Swear not at all. It means briefly that you are not to take vows. You are not to mortgage your future conduct in advance. You're not to mortgage your future conduct in advance. To undertake to do or to refrain from any doing something tomorrow. Next year or 30 days hence, you are not in any way to seek to fix your conduct or your belief for tomorrow while it is yet today. Because I will shut out what's going to be. I will stop learning. I, I, um, and he says down the page, you are by that very act shutting God out. I'm a really good father. And I know why I'm a good father. I'm a good father because I have remained teachable because of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, my son Jesse wound up at the University of Chicago on a scholarship for physics. I have not understood anything my son has done in many years. He got a five in AP chemistry in the eighth grade. If you know how scholastic works in LA, that means he had an A in college chemistry in the eighth grade. My sons are fabulous funk musicians and, and mathematicians. My wife says that my DNA was actually just a transportation device, that I was, uh, I was happy to be there and make some sort of contribution. I'm, I'm apparently was just, got, I was a delivery system. <laughs> a couple of years ago when Jesse was in high school, he came up to me and said, uh, hey, Dad, can you help me with my homework? And I went, well, yeah, what, what, what can I do? He said, uh, get me something to eat. <laughs> get all the way up there. You know, I went, whoa, yeah. <laughs> so on step 11 in chapter 6, uh, what I did was I went through the section where we're told what to ask God for. It's kind of a description. Um, and it starts at the bottom of page 85, 86 to 87. <clears throat> and I put together the following prayer based on what I saw us being asked to ask God for. Pop, please direct my thinking today. Show me all through the day what my next step is to be. Give me whatever I might need to overcome such difficulties. Please keep my thoughts especially divorced from selfish, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. Keep me from self-will and self-pity. Hold me close to you. Reveal your work to me and give me the power to carry it out. Hold me close to you and keep me sober just for today so that I might better do thy will. Thy will be done, not mine. And then I try to open up to God and say, hey, what do you got? What do you got? To take that moment to open up, get out of the ritual and say, Pop, what do you got? I'm having a hard time at work. Well, what's going on? Well, the boss is a psycho. Okay, what can you do? You've already written a 10th step. What do you need to do this morning? Okay, some mornings it's, I need to go in and make him coffee and massage his feet. I don't know. Go do it. Maybe another morning it's, you really need to stay the hell away from him. Whatever it is for me to get on board with God, to say, these are the defects that have been particularly troublesome right now. What can I do? Instead of wandering in and saying, please kill me. I want to die. Please kill me immediately. To wake up to wake up, to get right in the middle of that. 
to sit and feel the air going through my nose and be here to stop looking at people and to go, ooh, a life, a life, a life, a full-blown life with love and wants and needs and desires, a life, a life. I don't want to be alone anymore. I don't want to suffer that incredible corner that I painted myself into. So this 11th step and following it, and as I shared before, this has come to me very... I, I've been developing spiritually my whole sobriety, and this delving into 11 on this level has come to me in my 17th year of sobriety. And uh, you know what? The chapter of vision for you says something great. Use it whenever you want. It says the best years lay ahead. It doesn't say always, but as far as I'm concerned, it does. Always. The best years lay ahead. It doesn't say at first. <laughs> the best years lay ahead. You know? So, um, there's a, a great thing I wanted to share with you. I, I love this very much. Um, I have a... a uh, um, I've had a, many experiences, and if you've been around a, any appreciable amount of time, you've seen people come in and start to make a beginning and drink for one reason or another. To not be in a position to, uh, uh, and I don't understand that. I don't understand why people do that. But here's the catch. I, don't, I also don't understand why people stay sober. I know how I'm staying sober, but I believe that this thing is absolute and complete mystery. I don't believe I'm in the same kind of danger that you're in if you're new because I've been doing the exercise. I've been in the spiritual gym. This is a quote that I learned through a spiritual teacher of mine, and it's actually a quote from a guy who used to work at the UN. He used to be Secretary General of the UN. And it is one of the most beautiful expressions of, of the AA. And it makes me think of the people I know who have had a drink, and I want to share it with you now. He says, God does not die on the day that we cease to believe in a personal deity but we die on the day when our lives cease to be illumined by the steady radiance renewed daily of a wonder the source of which is beyond all reason I'll read it again God does not die on the day that we cease to believe in a personal deity but we die on the day when our lives cease to be illumined by the steady radiance renewed daily of a wonder the source of which is beyond all reason. How incredibly true for the alcoholic. When one of us drinks, the rest of us don't. <clears throat> and the day that our life, that we cease to get that, that daily reprieve based on what we're doing here. Um, I had a guy at my house uh, uh, one afternoon. He drank that night. And my wife saw him the next day and could not visibly recognize the guy. He was a completely different human being. Didn't know who the guy was. And don't you love that section in the doctor's opinion where Silkworth talks about seeing a guy who he had seen at his bottom and saying, this guy doesn't even vaguely resemble this guy. We turn Nazis into knights in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, in, uh, in the North Hollywood group years ago, there were two guys who were doing uh, bank robbers, uh, robberies in... Um, the LA area and the cops came and took them out of an AA meeting and one of the guys yelled as they were taking him away the program works <laughs> and uh, they uh, when guys went and visited them in, in prison they were going it works we never fought we didn't have resentments against each other I mean we really so I, I say um, I <laughs> that's AA I mean that's AA I say we turn Nazis into Knights we might just be turning out really happy Nazis I don't know it's just uh, uh, we don't we don't uh, we don't uh, attach a, a value to it. Um, 
<clears throat> Step 12 is uh, they wrote uh, an entire chapter about it. It's chapter 7, and I guess they felt it was really important. You know, sharing is really hard. Sharing's tough in AA. And I, I, uh, when I would have a tough time listening to sharing when I was new, my sponsor gave me three methods to get through sharing that was difficult for me. One thing was always difficult for me was when guys would get up at meetings and go, my sponsor has told me to share at every meeting I go to. So, <laughs> to which I'd say, then why isn't he here listening to you? Why us? Why did we catch it in the shorts for this? Can I tape it and bring it back to him? Maybe he'll change his direction. But I would go out at a certain Amy, at the end of the day, my sponsor used to say, at the end of the day, Alcoholics Anonymous should be a comforting, enjoyable experience. It is difficult, it is hard, but at the end of the day, when all was said and done, this should be fun, I think. And, um, and, and in sponsorship, too, it can be very difficult at times, but he used to say that, and I, I agree with him. And, and yet I was going to AA meetings and just nutty, or it had been batshit. I mean, just taking everything personally, you know. And uh, he said, look, Number one, everything that is said in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting needs to be said. You just might not be on the list of people who need to hear it, man. But if you start deciding what needs to be said and not to be said at the meeting, you're, you're doomed. The second thing he said was, are you willing to take the following uh, chance with your life? Because he believed, as I have believed, since I'm very young in AA, I've asked myself this question that I know my friends have asked themselves many times. Am I taking a step toward a drink or away from a drink? That's the acid test. That's what it, even to try to litter on the street. Am I taking a step toward a drink or away from a drink? Because that's it. That's what it is. You know? uh, my grand sponsor used to say, talk about newcomers who were, you know, coming back and going, geez, I was with some guys who were smoking crack last night, but I was really comfortable. Uh, they, they, of course, forget that it's illegal. The cops don't care if you're comfortable. And, and uh, uh, Cliff used to say, uh, he said, that's like uh, Jonah getting out of the belly of the whale and going back in for his hat. You know, and I, I just, uh, I love that. I love that a lot. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and then the third thing, the third method that my sponsor said, oh, oh, so he, my sponsor said, are you will, uh, willing to take the following um, chance with your life? Are you willing to go up to that podium, tap the guy or the gal on the shoulder and say, why don't you shut the hell up and sit down because I'm going to talk now? And you know what? My answer was no then and it's no now. I'm not willing to take that chance with my life. I'm not. I also go to meetings that follow the traditions and do a lot of stuff, so, you know, it's, I'm, I'm in pretty good company. But even if I'm not, I'm not willing to take that chance with my life. And then the third thing he told me, which has been incredibly helpful, he said, remember, they're going to stop. It's going to end. They, they, it is, you know. And I don't, when I'm in the middle of it, I don't think it's going to end. You know, my DNA is unraveling. The, the flesh is falling off my face. I'm just going insane. You just, I'm, just want to see their face burst into flame, you know. Just stop. But I judge no man. <laughs> and so I've got this little mantra. I go, this will stop. And it always does. It always does. So it's very helpful to me with that. <clears throat> Came up for me um, when I was new. Uh, there was a lot of talk about this. When should you start doing 12-step work? 
Um, if you have not ever heard her and you are new in AA, I want to urge you, and I know you can get it from Encore Tapes, uh, to listen to the story of a woman named Sybil C., Sybil Corwin. She was one of the first women uh, to sober up in AA and, in fact, was the first woman to sober up in Los Angeles. Uh, she was wearing a turban, sitting in a steam bath, sweating out a, uh, a bender, and read the Jack Alexander article in the Saturday Evening Post, and went to the only AA meeting, which was on a, a balcony of a hotel in a, a LA. And around that time, they were receiving the first letters in reaction to the publishing of the Big Book of AA. And her, at her, one of her, her, the first meetings she went to, they gave her a stack of letters and said, "This is all the women who have responded by mail to the publication of the Big Book." Go talk to them. And they said, don't tell them anything, because you don't know anything, but go talk to them. You know, don't be a, try to be an authority. She started as far south as she could in the beach communities, knocked on the door, said, are you Ethel? Yes, I am. Did you write this letter? And talked to them and invited them to a meeting. Wow. Wow, what a story. What a story. So I always use that as my blueprint for, for action. What you can do, do all of it. What you can't do, don't do any of it. What you have, give all of it away. If all you got is a quarter and a car, lend a guy a dime and give him a ride. If you don't got it, don't give it. Don't give it. You know. Um, so uh, I love that. And if you ever get a chance to listen to Sybil's, Sybil's brother, uh, Tex, started a place called The Hole in the Ground down, uh, I think it's in uh, Hawthorne or something like that around there. And he was going to go, uh, he got pissed off at the one AA meeting in uh, L.A. and he went to start his own group. And they said, well, you can't do it. Uh, we are incorporating Alcoholics Anonymous in Southern California, and we will sue the shit out of you. You cannot do it. And Tech said something, and I love this so much. He said, you might as well incorporate the sunset. <laughs> I mean, it was just, wow, how remarkable. And that, uh, that group still exists, still around. Um, one of the things that happened to me uh, when I was a newcomer that I really do believe, and I, I, I believe about it in retrospect, was I was a shit magnet. Any shit in the universe seemed to just go, just uh, it, it just found me. I was, I, I, I <laughs> seriously, I just felt like I was made out of Velcro, you know? And I gotta tell you, except for the, the wreckage part, which I don't have to deal with anymore, by and large, I don't know that that many bad stuff doesn't happen to me anymore. I just don't take it personally. <laughs> I, and I'm sure that I, I, I managed to get myself into stuff and talk myself into situations. So one of the things that uh, is, is been most difficult for me as a newcomer and in talking to newcomers is I know what it's like to live without resentment. I also know what it's like to experience it again. And because I know what it's like to live pretty much without it at times, that when I experience it again, I feel like my, my, my appendix is burst and I feel like a poison has been released into my body. I can't explain this to a newcomer. I couldn't understand it as a newcomer. I had no relative experience with it. I didn't. I'd be asking myself to remember when I was a very, very little boy. And I just didn't remember that far back. So a, a lot of, you know, the, the other part, component of that is the more I have allowed myself to be sponsored, the more willing I am to sponsor an AA. And allowing myself to be sponsored is, is no small thing at times. It's been very, very difficult, you know, uh, because I work with guys who, unless I ask them what they think, they're, they're pretty much not going to tell me. Um, not drinking almost killed me. <clears throat> I had to die of self to be reborn in the 12 steps 
and give and take it for fun and for free, to sponsor and to allow myself to be sponsored. That's how it started. That's how it started with my sons. The template of good sponsorship was, for me, I got to use it directly with my children. You know, a, a guy I sponsor later on, uh, in sponsorship, called me one night, and he uh, was going to have his second baby, and he had his two-year-old son, and he asked if I could take care of his son while they went and had their second baby. And me and my son, Jesse, who was 15 by then, who I couldn't go and take care of because I couldn't come down to the hospital that night, got to take care of that little boy that night. And I got to tell Jesse about the grace we were experiencing. I got to tell Jesse about, you're doing this for someone, and it could not be done for you. And look, Look at this. Look at this. You know, it was uh, it was pretty remarkable. Um, I have also found in me, and this is kind of really interesting to me, that tough love for me is much when it comes up for me has been um, the product of impatience more than anything else. If you just shut up and tell you and do what I tell you to do, I'd have more time and I wouldn't have to listen to this. Um, and uh, I also have had to tell some guys some stuff that they haven't particularly been excited about hearing. Um, uh, I've had some pretty serious, difficult situations with guys. What I try to do as a sponsor is I try to err on the side of not playing God, as opposed to erring on the side of playing God. Um, I have a sponsee named Phil. Phil came in Alcoholics Anonymous. He was in terrible condition. He was uh, a... Uh, addicted to crack. He was living on the floor of his crack dealer's apartment. Uh, there were a lot of firearms. It was really bad, really bad. And he, uh, he made a beginning. He was in one of the youngest punk groups that ever came out of England. His parents actually had to sign his uh, contract uh, so that he could go on the road. He, he came from a pretty wild deal. And, uh, um, and he made a beginning, and he came to our home group, and the guys loved him, and they were rooting for him the same way we root for guys. We watched this guy put together this shattered life, living on the floor of his, co his coke dealer's apartment, and he got a job, got a job waiting on tables, and was sober a year or two, and he came to me, and he said, you know, I met this woman uh, three months ago, and uh, she's pregnant, and I, I want to uh, I want to get marry her and have the baby. What do you think? And I took a deep breath. And I turned to her, and I had the knee-jerk reaction I had from all the years that I had been doing the work that I do in AA. And I turned to him, and I told him the truth. The truth. I'll do, I'll do whatever you want me to do. What do you want to do? Do you want to have a baby? I'll drive you to the... Uh, I'll, I'll show up, I'll be your best man, and I'll... You know, what do you want me to do? Do you want an abortion? I'll lend you the money, and I'll drive you down to the hospital. What do you want me to do? I'm not going to put a value on this. I'm not going to let my personal stuff get into it. What did I think? thought he was nuts. Um, but I don't put a particularly high premium on, you know, I mean, marriages don't work. A lot of my, my wife and I have the longest marriage outside of Appalachia of anybody in the United States our age, for God's sake. I, I mean, a lot of marriages don't work. We don't know what the right way to do this stuff is. And they had the baby. And they asked me to be the best man. And I went and I was the best man. And the home group was really loving this love they just loved the guy loved the whole thing the baby was born and the baby was grievously sick the baby was dying the baby was rushed 
to Children's Hospital, and she had to be put on something terrible. It's called an ECMO machine. It's one of the most intrusive things that can happen to a newborn. The machine is attached to the baby's aorta because the lungs aren't accepting oxygen. The blood is taken out, oxygenated, and put back in the body. There's only so long that a baby can bear this, and this is the situation that was in. We went back to the home group that night, and he, was a, he waited on tables for a living. He was a working guy. And the, past the basket, the guys threw about four or five hundred bucks in the basket so that he didn't have to work and he could just be there for his family. Because that's Alcoholics Anonymous in certain places. And uh, we're at the hospital and uh, baby's dying all around. You know, why didn't his baby die? It's an absolute and complete mystery. Absolute and complete mystery. And... Um, and then, uh, you know, you've got to be a relative to go into natal, natal intensive care. So her uncle starts showing up, large black men, uh, and her aunts, who are small Polynesian women and uh, big overweight Jews and all of these people. And, uh, and, like, after the second day, the nurses would go, yeah, you're a relative. Yeah, got it. <laughs> Don't stop to lie. Just move on. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> The call went out for blood, and two weeks after they were home with Cassidy, uh, the, the hospital called Phil and said, you might want to tell them to stop. They keep, they're like dropping off blood in jars, you know? They're like, I mean, most of us can't give blood because you're either a, a, an old hype or you got fresh pictures, you know, fresh tats, so, but we just go down to get pissed off that they won't take our blood, you know? What do you want to <laughs> And, um... About uh, some months later, Phil pulled me aside and he said, I just want to tell you that when you told me that, you, you know, whatever I did was okay, you know, if I married or I didn't marry, he said, uh, I didn't believe you. But you were there all 16 days the baby were in the hospital, was in the hospital, and I believe you. Phil didn't need to know. He didn't know that, I, that every day I walk into the hospital, I feel the presence of my father, who I couldn't show up for the night that he died. I, feel, I celebrate that. I feel so incredibly free and wonderful. I'm going there. I'm, I'm glad he thinks I'm a nice guy. But I'm going there because this demonstration is unbelievable. That's something I was never, ever going to be free from. You know? And still today, um, when I've done that, and I've had an opportunity to be in, in a room when guys have, have taken their light into another room, um, I just feel that thing. My sons, Jesse and Micah, a couple of years ago, um, when they were about uh, in their, before they turned 20, in, uh, one of their dearest and closest friends died suddenly and unexpectedly. A 19-year-old kid died in his, uh, his, in his sleep from a congenital heart uh, problem that no one even knew that he had. And they loved him. They loved him so much. This was horrible. Absolutely horrible. And Micah came to me and said, Dad, what am I going to do? And I said, son, all I can tell you is I do three things. I make sure that I don't have any resentments with the person. I make sure that I find a way to continue my relationship. And I make sure that I'm not trying to be opportunistic and use this thing. Where did I get that from? You know, and I sat in that funeral home with both of my sons, holding them, feeling the presence of my father again as we said goodbye to Lauren. You know, and my kids were clean. Absolutely remarkable.
Um, I have found that uh, people who have grown up in alcoholic homes have a little more on the shelf when they do 12-step work. It's been my experience that people who have grown up with alcoholism, who I sponsor, need to open up and discuss this in terms, because, you know, what is this? this is my, my wife gave me this quote from her experience in Illinois. I think I'm going to get screwed and I'm surprised when I'm not. And all of that stuff that gets hardwired into people who grow up in alcoholic homes. It's, I'm not going to get mine. I'm not going to get mine. I never do. It goes away. It evaporates. You can't bring the paycheck home in an armored car. They're going to get over on me. It's going to happen. If I get in between them and the drink, I'm gone. And because we've thrown this stuff on the table and, uh, and, and, uh, and discussed it, I've seen people who have grown up in alcoholic homes have very successful experiences as being sponsors and sponsees in Alcoholics Anonymous because it's kept above the horizon. It's kept as a real piece of business. You can take a look at it. It's not like I shouldn't be feeling this. What do you mean you shouldn't be feeling it? If you were hunted in your own home as a kid, you shouldn't be feeling it? Well, if, if, if you do that, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to transmute into self-pity and all, of this other, all these other blocks. So it's just an interesting thing, a really experience I've had as a sponsor working with, uh, with people who have grown up in, in alcoholic homes. Um, my uh, brother-in-law is a guy named Tom, and he's terrible drunk. And um, some years ago, uh, he came down from Northern California. My whole family was here. And I was talking at a meeting, and I really felt, you know what, Tom, I'll bring him, and he'll listen to me talk, and he'll never drink again. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna look, I am going to look so great to the family because they've been suffering with this guy. I think he drank while I talked. Um, I think he was sitting on an opium suppository or something. I mean, he, was, he stayed sober exactly not for one second. But three years later, this guy calls me and he says, look, you don't know me, but three years ago, I was released from a mental institution. I stole a car and a gun. I was going to kill myself. I decided to go one more A meeting. I heard you talk. I never drank again. And it was that meeting. So uh, I had nothing to do with that. But God, I, wanted to, God, I wanted to get God, you know, God got somebody sober that night. It just wasn't the guy who was going to make me look particularly good, which kind of pissed me off, to tell you the truth. Um, one night I came home from uh, talking at a meeting. I think I had saved everyone in Covina that particular evening. And um, I walked into my house and uh, I said to my wife, how are you doing? She said, I'm fine. Uh, unfortunately, your son's having a bad acid trip. I did not know that he had smoked a cigarette. So I went in and I said a prayer and I went back out and I put my arms around my kid and I said, I love you. This is a pill. It's going to wear off and I'm not going to leave you until you're okay. And he said, thank you, Dad. I called another member of Alcoholics Anonymous, who's a psychiatrist. He prescribed some medication for my kid. Another member of AA went and got the medication, came back with it, and I thanked the psychiatrist. I said goodnight, and he said, oh, no, I'm not going to sleep until Micah goes to sleep. And he stayed up on the phone until, and talked to Micah until Micah was done. You guys didn't tell me I wasn't going to have difficulties. You didn't tell me my kids would not be sick. You told me I'd never be alone again. If I let you in, if I let you in, I'd never be alone again. And it still takes me a while to learn. The next week, my, I said to my wife, how was your meeting? She said, it was fine. I talked about the thing with Micah. I said, oh, no, you told everybody. Oh, my God. She said, honey, what do you think my club is about, particularly? How to live with alcoholism. 
how to live with it. And when my wife would never, you know, she had she asked for a second opinion for my corpse, you know, and she was able to, we were able to ask for help, ask for help from the men and women of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we engaged in a process with my, my son, which I liken to good sponsorship in my experience of it. I said to my kid, okay, now you're going to go to therapy. I'm not going to get ahead of you. I'm just going to stick with you. I'm going to give you flexible, consistent, sensible limits. Flexible, consistent, fl flexible, consistent, sensible limits. That's what I'm going to do. Resist not evil. Make no oaths. Draw no lines, right? So now you go to therapy. I went to therapy. Got busted for selling drugs in school. I said, okay, now, <laughs> now you'll go to outpatient treatment with random drug testing. And if you test dirty, you'll go away. Gets thrown out of the privileged school he's in. Now we are in Starsky and Hutch school. I, I, I'm serious, man. I take him for the first day of school. This gang members on their knees, hands in the back of the head, getting first in the like in front. It was like a display, right? I go, <laughs> I go in and talk to the dean. This is exactly who my, the dean does not want. My kid's a dealer. He doesn't want this kid. He sits and he says, he's looking at it like he's going to vomit. He goes, oh, man. And he, he looks at me and he goes, what do you think of your son? Because now we're going to gang up on him, right? And I said, I think my son is a very handsome, very bright young man who is in a situation that is beyond his control and his understanding, and I love him very much. And the guy kind of went, well, what do you think of your dad? <laughs> like, don't you think he's an asshole? I sure do. <laughs> he wanted more people in the room at that point, you know. And uh, my son said, I, all I can tell you is I'm so glad he's here with me, you know. And uh, Micah did not test dirty. He did not have to go away, but I gave him sensible, consistent, flexible, you know, uh, uh, limits. And we wound up having a successful experience. The, uh, the outpatient treatment thing he was in, he, he, we're, I'm driving him to it one day, and he says, Dad, this sucks. I went, dude, it sucks. He said, these people are, this is terrible. I said, yeah, look where we are. This is where we are. It's terrible. It's not AA. It's, you know, I, uh, a guy I know, you say that the recovery industry shows you once and for all that you can't give away what you don't have, but you can sell it. And um, I, uh, I got to tell you, I love recovery houses, and I got no beef with recovery houses or anything like it. Uh, one of the guys I respect most in AA is a guy named Tom Iverster. Uh, and uh, he's, he, uh, he's got 45 years of sobriety, I believe, at this point. And he, one of the things he says in the workshop he gives, he says, remember the good old days? You don't, do you? Because there were none. <laughs> there were no good old days in AA. What was the good old days? When we had to go out and back behind the, the, the doctor's uh, office and we get a shot in the hip in secret? It's great that there's all these treatment centers, as long as you know that they're not Alcoholics Anonymous and have nothing to do with them. Absolutely nothing to do with AA. I got no beef with these guys at all. I think they're doing great work. I, I, I wish I'd had the guts to go to one when I was new, but I was just psycho and went to lovely Unity. Um, I have found, uh, somebody asked me before to enlarge on this a little bit, and I'll touch on it a little bit, uh, about the phrase that I keep using called entrenched power. Um, 
I, uh, when a guy reads me in inventory, I'm resentful at myself for being impatient with my mother. She's sick. What are my defects? Well, and then he reads me a list, and maybe I can make some additions. I can say, maybe impatient could, should go on the list. God, how did I find, how did I miss that? Well, it's, this is why we don't uh, uh, sponsor ourselves, you know. Um, and then I know that a guy I sponsor was being read inventory, and he made an addition of a defect, and the guy he made it to said, no, I don't really feel it belongs here. And the guy said, you'll put it down because I'm your goddamn sponsor and I told you to. That's entrenched power to me. It's entrenched power to me when I become uh, the leader of the group so that at a group conscience, before they make decisions, people are looking at me to see how I react. People are looking at me to, uh, to see if they should laugh at something at a meeting. That's entrenched power. That's entrenched power. And I can either encourage that or discourage that. Or at times, get myself the hell away from it. Because people are addicted to it. You know? Um, we have no opinion on outside interests, but you'll always get someone to talk about it. I mean, anything, anytime that happens in the news, if you're new here, you're going to love this, get used to it, you'll love it. Anytime something happens about sobriety or booze or any of this stuff, they go to GSO, they ask us, and every time it's the same deal. We don't have any opinion. We have no opinion, but they'll get one of us yo-yos to just tell them everything that we think we know. So um, uh, um, I think entrenched power erupts in different ways at different times in Alcoholics Anonymous. I think that it can happen on the group level, even though the group is supposed to be governed by a group conscience. Now, I didn't know the difference between a group conscience and an informed group conscience. In my group, for instance, on a group conscience, you cannot vote unless you have attended two group consciences, which take place every quarter, so you have to attend uh, the group for six months have attended two group consciences, and then we feel that if you're a regular member and you've seen how we adhere to the traditions here, then you should have a say. You can't even raise your hand or participate or ask a question if you're not a voting member of the group. We who started the group found a lot of bad stuff that we had started. We started other AA meetings. There was difficulty. People would load the meeting with people to get a vote. I mean, and, and what we did was we came up with a way to adhere to the traditions. We're autonomous. We get to form our group the way we want as long as we don't affect AA as a whole to make sure that it was an informed group conscience, that the group conscience was being expressed by people who understood the traditions of the meeting, how, what, what the meeting was used to doing, and man, it's just worked out great. It's just worked out great. Also in our format, we asked that uh, Robert's Rules have, uh, get adhered to, which no one knows what the hell Robert's Rules are. But it's, uh, one, some, a member of our group actually read it last week, so it was uncanny. Um, so I hope that's, uh, 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 that, that's what I'm talking about with entrenched power. It can happen on the group level. It can happen on um, the level of sponsor to sponsee. You know, and I, I I practice not playing God. That's not comfortable for a lot of people. I, I don't put a premium on that. Some people have to be more interactive, proactive, and instructive in, in sponsorship. So what? That's great if it's helping. I, the the thing about entrenched power is I cannot, me personally, involve the positive impact of not playing God if I'm participating in entrenched power. That that's 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 at the end of the day. That's what that that means for me. Um, I, uh, I've seen people in Alcoholics Anonymous do stuff, as I told you about with my friend who was a member of the Aryan Brotherhood, not that they're ill-equipped to do, that they're unequipped to do, that they're actually uh, not equipped to do at all. Um, 
some years ago, one of the guys I sponsored who grew up in an alcoholic home and taught me many things about sponsoring someone who had suffered in a, an alcoholic home as a child. Taught me a lot of stuff. Um, asked me to become the godfather for his baby. So I went to become a godfather. And there were a lot of people from AA at the christening in St. Charles Church. Uh, and I was going to become a, a godfather in the Catholic Church. And the priest, I was holding the baby, and the priest said, um, uh, do you believe that uh, Jesus, the Son of God, was died on the cross and was resurrected? And um, uh, all my AA friends went like that. And uh, I turned to him and I went, yeah. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Who am I to say no? Who am I to say no? Who are you to say there is no God? You know, the, I held him. The, the, he said, will you raise this child Catholic? I said, yes. Do you believe this about Jesus Christ? I said, yes, yes. Who am I to, not, to, not, to say no? It was great. It was great. I resisted no evil. I made no oaths. I said, yes, who am I to say no? It didn't feel like a lie. It didn't feel like a, a representation at all. A couple of months later, he and I were talking about it, me and my friend, and part of me was saying, dude, didn't you think maybe to tell me this or like anything? I mean, I didn't. They cut this out of The Godfather. They went right to the piano wire. You know, they sang a song and garroted a guy. They didn't show this part at all. <laughs> and he told me that a couple of days before, he went to the priest and he said, I just want to tell you that The Godfather is Jewish. And the priest said to him, you know what? It's all going to be fine. <laughs> he was absolutely right. My wife and I have had a lot of uh, problems in, in, uh, since we've been sober. Uh, a lot of difficulties in our marriage. Uh, a lot of bitterness. A lot of uh, difficulties. I've been uh, driving home. I was a couple of years sober, directing TV shows again, driving a new car home, sponsoring 20 guys, participating in my home group. And I realized that I was absolutely terrified of going home. I was so scared of my wife. When I heard my wife's uh, car come up the driveway, I'd look around. Are the boys watching the, the right thing on TV? Is the house clean? It's like living with active alcoholism. None of this was her fault. It's the way I was acting and feeling. So I wrote a sexual inventory about it didn't involve sex. It involved the kind of guy I want to be and the kind of way I want to live. And uh, I went to my sponsor and I discussed it and, and I prayed about it and what came out in the wash, what I should be doing instead, I should have an open and honest conversation with my wife. That's what it said. And I, I, I put it off. Sometimes the trip to the other side of the bed, which is about three feet, is about eight and a half billion miles. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't make it to the other side of the bed. I wanted a certain kind of sex life. It wasn't enough just to be on the on the just to be available. To be available. To be filled with love. To want to <laughs> to want to bring something instead of get something. That's the way we're supposed to go to parties sober, but <laughs> enough's enough. Um and uh, I, I went to my wife and I said, I'm, I'm terrified of you. And she said, well, what do, you, what do you want me to do? I said, I don't want you to do anything. I just want to tell you that I'm really scared. I'm scared that if I don't do things right, I'll be punished and I won't get to have sex. And I'm scared of that. And she said, well, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do you? And I went, I have no idea. I don't think you're... I'm telling you, I'm doing... I didn't say this to her, but I'm doing what, what Micah did that day. I'm not telling you you were wrong. I'm telling you that I'm mad. Don't tell me I can't be mad. I was terrified, and I didn't know what to do. And I threw it on the table, and it started a process for us that has led to real bliss for us. 
We went to therapy. We worked out great things in therapy and then went home and threw a Buick at each other. I mean, it was, again, it was, it was psychology. It wasn't moral psychology. We didn't have the third leg. We didn't have the spiritual. We didn't know what to do. It was great ideas that we had no moral application for them. You know, until we finally, my sponsor would say, could you pray with your wife? And I go, oh, pray with my wife. No, I'll pray with a known puppy strangling felon, right? <laughs> I picked the guy up at the, at, the, you know, at the bus station. He's just been released from jail, you know, for puppy strangling. You want to take the third step? Yeah, good, hit your knees, let's go, I don't care, it's a public place, who gives a crap? <clears throat> but my wife, oh, that's embarrassing and unnecessary. She's just my wife, my lover, my buddy, my bride, my confidant, the person who I'm in, involved in this adventure with. Pray? Ooh. Use the only thing that's ever helped me? Ooh. Who wants to do that? <laughs> and out of, out of desperation, because it kept going below the horizon, it'll be okay. No, it's not okay. And it's not been okay since. It's not getting okay. And we started holding hands and saying, Pop, can you please help us? We didn't work the steps together. We said, can you help us to stop taking everything personally? Everything. Can you help us to have a sense of humor? It's like we've had our sense of humor surgically removed. Can you help us try to show each other the God in us to each other to walk closer to you? Please help us. And we started really getting better. And this is deep in the sobriety. This is years in, you know. Why is it that I, I'm so focused on, on creating comfort and being kind to other people, and I, in my head I'm balancing out insane shit? If I leave that dish in the sink, she'll be annoyed, but I'll take out the garbage. But I'll have to let her know that I've taken out the garbage so that when she sees the plate, she'll know, it's not that bad, he took out the garbage. This isn't even a life. This is like, this is like, I'm like in a dungeon in the middle of the earth. But this, <laughs> but these are the kind of dialogues I'm having. <laughs> um, I am enjoying the expanse created by the retraction of my ego. I'm enjoying the expanse of my life and the roominess of my life that has been created from the retraction of this insane disease of self that I've had. Um, I've heard at meetings of AA another thing that has not been true for me. I've heard people say that you can't be in fear and faith at the same time. It's just not true for me. I'm, I'm quite often scared and I have full faith that I am going to get through that fear. I've had fear and faith simultaneously many, many times. I believe eventually down the road I can't be in those states at the same time because I'll just get exhausted after a while. I'll just get ground. My sponsor used to say something I just really loved. It's very interesting. One of the things that, not God, that I love is he explains some stuff a little more. Bill, uh, in Pass It On, I talk about this whole chapter about him dropping a lot of acid, which I always love. I just think of Bill playing with a headless doll under a black light uh, at GSO. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but also, there's all this talk about Bill Wilson's um, 
Bill Wilson's depression, this, this, this mythical depression that he went into, this five-year depression, and that he suffered from depression. And not God points something out. Incredible. It says that anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our principles. I don't believe that you can have entrenched power and have anonymity at the same time. And that's no small thing. It's the spiritual foundation of all of our principles. Bill ended a couple of year-long press junket before he began his depression. This is when Marty Mann and the catcher from Cleveland were out there. He had his picture in the, in the newspapers. He was out there giving interviews. And he came off this press tour and he fell into a five-year depression. And you know what? I need to know that. That's valuable information for me. I really appreciated it. Um, I, a, a friend of mine says, and I love this, the worst things that I do are the things I do so that I won't feel bad. And I love that in the spirit of 12-step work. If, I'm, if a guy wants to talk to me, and I'll, I'll paraphrase DeMello here, and he says, I don't want to talk to the guy. But come in, come in, we'll talk, we'll talk. He comes in, he tells me all about his girlfriend's transmission and all this stuff. And I go, and he says, what should I do? And I say, well, write a 10-step. And he leaves, you know. So, oh, thank God, he's gone. All I wanted to do was watch TV, and he leaves, you know, and the next day he comes to me and says, oh, what you did was so helpful. Can I come back again? I go, yeah, you can. And what am I doing? I'm people-pleasing. I'm not finding a way to do this happy, joyous, and free and give it away. I'm doing something so I won't feel bad. And I've had to do a lot of gut checks on that. I've had to look at sponsorial situations that I've had where I really was not sponsoring the guy because we were enjoined in a creative relationship together. But it wasn't so I, would, so I wouldn't feel bad. Um, one of my uh, spiritual advisors uses this quote, and I just love it. He's talking about uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon and king of the, of the known civilized world at that time. He says, the king of Babylon, conqueror of the world as he knew it, Nebuchadnezzar, owning everything... Fearing everything, understanding nothing, went mad and died. I want to read to you my, uh, my former sponsor, Paul O., who passed away about three years ago. One of the last interchanges we had was uh, he wrote this thing about sponsorship. Just as this little note that he wrote me, I'm going to read it to you. Uh, Paul um, lived to be about 83. He was uh, married 61 years, uh, sober 33 years. Um, uh, was walking 10 miles, uh, like 10 miles, 15 miles a week until 48 hours before he died. I mean, I'll sign up. Where do you sign up for that? I'll sign up for that. This is a guy who went to check his wife into a mental institution. They let her go home and kept him there. So, uh, <clears throat> so I went to visit him in the hospital. And again, you know, I get this incredible deal from being in the hospital. He had just had open heart surgery, and he said to me, he said, the worst thing about this is I spent all these years training people to hug me, and because his breastbone had been opened up, he said, now I have to ask him not to hug me for a couple of weeks. That was his only complaint that he said to me. And when he, uh, I came there, and the nurse took his blood pressure, and his blood pressure was up, and he's uh, high, and he pointed to me, and he said, he excites me. <laughs> and it was another one of those incredible blessings. And uh, I want to read this to you. It's, I just love it, love it to pieces. This is written by Paul a couple of months before he passed on. It's about sponsorship. He says, be an interested observer. Have you ever watched the continuing deterioration of someone you really want to help? Perhaps a close friend or a relative, maybe one or more of your own children, and they don't respond to anything you say or do. This can be extremely frustrating and discouraging for people in recovery. You want so badly to help, but you can't. 
They just won't hear you. They do not respond to unsolicited advice or counsel. This happens to me when I try too hard in sponsoring, when I am working harder on their recovery than they are. It happens to people who have heard, uh, uh, who have, uh, uh, heard about the highly directive dictatorial type of sponsor and want to be like that, but discover that the sponsee simply ignores them. In a situation like this, I assume the role of, of interested observer. Rather than becoming annoyed at them and at sponsorship in general, I become an interested but inactive observer. I listen. I'm interested in what they are doing and how it is going to turn out. And I answer an occasional question, but mainly I observe. I see myself as sitting quietly in the audience rather than projected into the action on the screen. Since I have no investment in the outcome, I'm not emotionally involved in making it come out my way. As a result, I'm comfortable and entertained rather than frustrated and resentful. Indeed, I am practicing the AA principle, love and tolerance of others is our code. And one more time, I realize that if I want to change my feelings, I must first change my actions and my thinking, mine, not theirs. I can't let behavior, their behavior be more important to me than my emotional sobriety and serenity. No matter how much I love them, no matter how much I care for them, no matter how important their welfare is to me, I must watch my priorities, I must value my serenity above their behavior. <clears throat> I am going to wrap our uh, workshop up and I'm going to read to you uh, one more thing and then I want to give a little minute or two talk on something else and then we'll wrap up. I, uh, I hope today that, uh, that you found something else exciting about the steps. Maybe you found a personal application that you hadn't thought of before. Maybe my talk has made you more convinced that uh, what you're doing is really what you ought to be doing and you shouldn't waver. It doesn't matter to me. I just can't tell you how much I appreciate us coming together today and you trusting enough to sit here and, and, uh, and uh, while this workshop's going on. I really am very grateful. And you've allowed me to get to know you a little bit better, and that's the only way that I get to know God at the end of the day. I'm now going to read to you what Bill Wilson wrote. He was watching the 12 traditions become ratified at the first Alcoholics Anonymous International Convention in 1955. And it is another, one of the most gorgeous expressions of the issue of entrenched power I've ever read. So the first international, uh, 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 in 1955, the 12 traditions were being ratified. There could no longer be a leader of AA because the, uh, the traditions were being placed, uh, put in place. Bill was dethroning himself by suggesting that they be accepted. When the traditions were ratified, he wrote, Standing before the convention for the last time, I felt as all parents do when their sons and daughters begin to make their own decisions and live their own lives. No more would I act for, decide for, or protect Alcoholics Anonymous. I saw that well-meaning parents who cling to their authority and overstay their time can do much damage. We old-timers must do, never do this to the AA family. When in the future they might ask us, we would gladly help them in the pinches, but that would be all. This new relationship was indeed the central meaning of what, we had, just, what had just taken place by taking the traditions in. Like most parents, at such anxious times, I could not help a few last-minute admonitions. <clears throat> That was our, at our 20th anniversary. We're now 68 years old. So, as I spoke again, I felt the tug of that desire to set back the clock. For a moment, I dreaded the coming change as much as anyone. He didn't want to give up the throne. But this mood quickly passed, and I knew that all worrying concern as a parent was now at an end. The consciousness of Alcoholics Anonymous, as moved by the guidance of God, could be depended upon to ensure AA's future 
Clearly, my job henceforward was to let go and let God. Alcoholics Anonymous was at last safe, even from me. <laughs> Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that remarkable? I don't know that I've ever heard the president of a country say the country is safe, even from me. <clears throat> if you know I want to welcome you to AA. The good news is, is our problem mainly rests in our mind. That's why we're here today. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, as far as I know, is the only recovery from a fatal illness where the, the text says that we absolutely insist on enjoying life. There's no book about recovery from cholera that says cholera is a hoot. Uh, you'll love cholera. You'll meet other people with cholera. And then you'll meet people who just caught cholera. It doesn't get any better than that. My sponsor, Paul, used to say that Alcoholics Anonymous was the only recovery he knew of where the, where the recovery left the sufferer in better condition than they were in before they contracted the disease. Wow. How remarkable. Um, and the bad news is our problem mainly rests in our mind. I like to tell two stories at the end of a talk, and I'll tell them today. Some years ago, I was at an AA meeting, and... Uh, a guy, a newcomer, uh, I met a newcomer, and I went home, and he called me, and he talked to me for an hour. I said, uh-huh, four times, so he'd know I wasn't dying. And uh, at the end of the hour, he said to me, I feel so alone. And I said, man, what are you talking about? I hardly know you. I just listened to you for an hour without interrupting. What do you mean you feel alone? And he said, I mean I don't have a woman. And I said to him, what exactly would you be bringing to a relationship right now you see, he had explained to me that he had been stalking several women and he had a restraining order taken out against him. So I said, what, what would you be bringing to a relationship right now besides stalking skills? What, what exactly, what do, you, what do you bring into the deal? People two weeks into remission from leukemia aren't having dating problems. Alcoholics are. Because our problem mainly rests in our mind. Because the proposition goes below the horizon. It stops presenting itself as a real piece of business. It hasn't been buoyed above that horizon. Uh, one day I was talking to a new guy. My wife knew I was talking to a new guy. And she walked through our room and she heard me say into the phone, let's say the aliens are coming. <laughs> she stopped short. She didn't want to miss a word of this. I said, listen, dude, I'm not telling you that the aliens aren't coming. That's an outside interest. They might very well be coming. But I have one question. Why you? Why have they come for you? Why have they traversed the universe for your sorry ass? You have no life. You're 11 days sober. You live in North Hollywood. Why you? Plus, he's sleeping with a Bible on his chest to ward them off. So they're going to traverse the galaxy, walk into his house, and go, Oh, no, the Bible. Let's go home. <laughs> so sometime after this, I'm at my home group, and I'm sharing this story. And the guy in the story walks into the room while I'm sharing the story. And I'm watching him, and I'm telling the story, and the cat goes, he went like this. <laughs> oh, shit. And I saw the memory of it come into his mind. If you're new here, I want to urge you as much as I can to go out there and, ha and, and take this thing as seriously as you possibly can and have the time of your life. If the aliens are coming for you, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Welcome home. Thanks so much, folks. I really appreciate it.
hope you've enjoyed this recording. To obtain additional copies, receive a free catalog of AA and Al-Anon talks, or to find out about our tape and CD of the Month Club, call Encore Audio Archives at 1-800-878-1308 or visit our website at www.12steptapes.com. <laughs>